Well, thanks for joining me this morning, you guys. Uh, my name is Kelsey, and um, again, I'm the Director of Youth and Young Adult Ministries here at Mount Hermon, and so I work with a great team um, to program and to plan for all of the things that we do at Ponderosa in the summer and the fall, as well as a family camp youth and college and young adult program, and then throughout the year, the intern program as well. And so um, I have a great team of people who do all of those things and hire the staff, and um, I love it. I have what I would consider my dream job. I love what I get to do and the people I get to do it with. Um, I started coming to Mount Hermon um, through family camp, and so I went through all of child care, day camp, youth program, the young adult program, and then started on summer stuff um, the summer after I graduated from college. And then after that, it was really one summer that I thought, I'll spend a summer serving at Mount Hermon. It's always been a dream. And um, that was 12 summers ago. <laughs> so um, it really just, I didn't really set out to be in young adult and youth ministry for this long, but uh, God definitely had other plans, and I am so grateful that he did, because I absolutely love what I get to do. So I'm just going to pray for us, pray for our time together, um, and then we'll jump in. God, thank you for um, just who you are and for this place. Thank you for um, just what Family Camp can offer um, in just a time to rest, a time to play, a time to be together as a family, and to grow closer to you individually as well as together. So I pray for um, those in this room, whatever their weeks has been holding um, God, that this would just be um, a great time of getting to spend time together, and Lord, that you would just use it for your purposes and your glory um, in whatever it is that you want me to say. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Um, my parents, um, really, something that I'm going to say from the get-go is I'm not a parent, so I don't know what it's like to be a parent. Um, I've asked my, my own parents a lot of questions um, to better understand what it's like in being a parent, but um, I'm not a parent, so I'm not going to be able to speak from a parent perspective of what it's like to have a young adult child. Um, I'm going to take my parents' word for it <laughs> and things that they have told me of what it's like. Um, but my hope in all this is whether you're a young adult and um, you're wanting to kind of understand a little bit more of what it's like to be a, in the young adult shoes, um, just to set up some good things for you to have, uh, good conversations for you to have with your family and with your peers. Um, if you're a parent, my hope is that it would give some more information of some of the things that current young adults are going through and then set up further conversations. So I'm not going to necessarily have like a step-by-step, -step, here's all the things that you need to do to successfully become an adult after being a young adult. It's more of here are some conversations for you to have, here's some things to know, and then hope that those conversations will kind of take the next step. My parents have told me, though, that um, I'm, the, I'm the second of four kids, and so I have an older sister who's married, has three kids. They live out in Colorado. It's me, my younger brother, who's in the military, and then my youngest sister, who's been an international teacher for a number of years, and she's currently working at Redwood. Um, all of us are about three years apart, and so there was a time when my oldest sister was on the cusp of 30. I was 27, my brother's 24, and my youngest sister's 21. And so my parents were deep in the 20s <laughs> with their four kids, and they've told me that the, young, the, the childhood years, the, the toddler and childhood years, those are exhausting years as a parent because of the energy and just the amount of activity it's exhausting in one way. And then the rebellious and angsty teenage years is frustrating because of like, uh, like who, where did my sweet child go? And now you're this angsty teen. But they've told me that the 20s were the hardest for them to sit through as parents. So um, I know, I've shared that and I've had parents be like, oh, seriously? Like, hopefully, hopefully I'll give you some hope. <laughs> yeah. um, 
But they've said the 20s have been their hardest as parents because of the factor of these are our children who are now adults. And so these are our, like, I will always be a child to my parents, but I'm no longer a child's age. And so for them as parents to figure out how do we support, how do we set up, how do we launch, and then realize that you're now an adult and you need to make adult choices. And to be a parent in that has taken them some time to figure out. And all four of my siblings and I, all of us are very different, have been on different you know, paths. And so for them, they've said that the 20s have been the hardest, but just in a way of how can I best love and support you when you're now the adult to make those choices? And that's been hard for them to figure out. I think out of all of this, it's been um, a theme that I've seen in teaching the seminar throughout the course of the summer is the amount of conversations that I can reflect on. And as a young adult, it was conversations with my parents that really set me up, and it's been conversations that they've had with me and with my siblings that have also helped kind of figure out how do we, how do, we do this dance together. Um, really, to better understand the world that young adults currently sit in, um, I've done a little bit of study of the generations, and right now young adults are within the millennial generation and the Gen Z generation. And they're very, very different, but have some crossover. So to better understand these two generations, we actually have to kind of back up to some of the previous ones. Um, because each generation and kind of the stereotype or the trends that happen, um, the global events that happen that shape a generation, those things really then filter into and affect the next generation. And oftentimes the, the following generation looks back and says, we want to be different than them. And so that also plays into it. Um, so for each generation block, there's also kind of um, a number of years where they'll bleed over into each other as well. Um, and so to better understand the Gen Z and millennial generations, we need to look first um, at their predecessors, which would be the boomers and then Gen X. And so it goes boomers, Gen X, Gen Y, which is more affectionately referred to as the millennials, and then Gen Z. Um, so for boomers, it's anyone who was born between 1944 to 1964. Um, they are currently in the age range of 55 to 75. Um, it's a really big generation. The boomers and the millennials are kind of the two biggest ones currently, um, which also plays into for Gen X, and we'll get to that in a minute. Um, for the boomers, a lot of the shaping events for them is post-World War II optimism, so why they're called the boomers, because everyone came back from the war, and it was you know, kind of the height of the American dream, and settling down, and this boom of uh, people being born. So that's why they're called the boomers. Um, the Cold War was a big shaping event, as well as the hippie movement. Um, Mike will often say something. I get a lot of parents who will say, I have a lot of fear for the current generation, but oftentimes those parents who are speaking a lot of fear of that generation were the ones in the hippie generation, and their parents had a lot of fear of how they were going to turn out. So many of you who are boomers, like, you can look back on like, the hippie movement, and there was a lot of fear even in that um, with the rise of drugs and rock and roll and sex culture, just all of that. And so um, the hippie movement really played into the boomers as well. Right now, this generation, unexpectedly, is experiencing a high um, increase in student debt which is really interesting. It's a high growth in student debt. They believe that you should take care of your children enough to like, set them up to live successfully, but they don't plan on leaving any inheritance. Um, and so the banking habits is also an interesting trend between these different generations as well. So then we come to Gen X. Um, they're anyone born between 1965 to 1979. And so it's uh, current ages of 40 to 54. Um, they still uh, consume a lot of media through um, kind of old school methods 
newspapers, magazines, but they're starting to become a little bit more uh, versatile on social media and the internet. And so um, they spend on average about seven hours a week on Facebook. And because Gen X is now on Facebook, Gen Z is not. <laughs> if you ask a current teenager, Facebook is like, what? <laughs> and it's because as soon as the older generations started to catch on to social media, the younger generation was out and they found their other platforms. And so Facebook is actually, if I want to interact with parents of campers, Facebook is where I send messages to parents. Instagram and Snapchat is where it is for, for actual campers. Um, so they are they're more digitally savvy, but still will prefer some older school methods of consuming media. So newspaper, magazines, they are digitally savvy, um, but they will still choose to go into a bank to make a transaction as opposed to doing it online. Um, some of the shaping events for them is the end of the Cold War. Um, the rise of personal computing, and then um, they often will say that they feel lost between the two generations. So there's a lot of emphasis on the boomers and the millennials and big differences between the two, and oftentimes Gen X will say, I feel a little lost in between the two. Um, I see a lot of nodding of heads by some people in here. So um, right now, those who are Gen X, and especially being 40 to 54, they are trying to raise a family they're trying to pay off student debt, and they're trying, to a, they're trying to take care of their aging parents. So Gen X is experiencing a lot of financial strain because of the amount of things that they're, is pulling their resources. So they have a really high strain on all their resources, and they um, are looking to decrease their debt um, while also trying to save and plan for a sustainable future. And so there's a lot of financial strain in Gen X, which then filters into millennials and Gen Z. All right, so then millennials. Um, that term, sometimes they're called Gen Y. No one really refers to that, but that's why you know, there's Gen X and Gen Z, whereas Y is actually the millennials, but they're more affectionately referred to millennials. And that term was coined back in the late 80s by um, two people who were looking ahead to the <laughs> impending doom that was, we were going to face at Y2K. And so the generation that was going to experience one millennium turning to another one, and so that's why they referred to that generation as the millennials. But it was back in, gosh, the late 80s that they kind of coined that term, looking ahead to the future. So it's also referred to as Gen Y or Gen Me, which is interesting. Um, Gen Me because of the level of narcissism that is uh, unfortunately a stereotype. I'm a millennial. Um, millennials are anyone who's born between 1980 to 1994. So the current age range is 25 to 39. So again, the younger side of the millennials and the older side of Gen Z is what currently comprises what we would term young adult. Um, and so for the millennials, it's such a massive generation and it's so, because of the rise of social media and the internet, this generation is actually kind of split between two because the older millennials feel very different than the younger millennials. And often the younger millennials bleed into a little bit more of the stereotypes of Gen Z. Um, and so for older millennials, for myself, I, social media, MySpace, Facebook, they didn't become a thing until like my sophomore year in college, as opposed to some of the younger millennials, it was in junior high. And just that one simple thing really does affect the adolescent development that they're going through. And so um, the older millennials feel very different than the younger millennials. Um, but many of them, this generation is extremely comfortable with mo uh, mobile devices. And, um, but still, they'll choose to purchase a computer to do other work than to do it on their phones. Whereas Gen Z, everything is now on their phone. 
Um, millennials are known for having a little patience with anything that is inefficient or poor service because they're used to, it's kind of like a snappy generation. I want what I want when I want it and it's gonna be good. Um, there's always more choice, which is really interesting. It's kind of one that millennials and Gen Z have as well. Some shaping events is the Great Recession uh, financially, seeing the effects of that, um, the technological explosion of the internet and social media, and 9-11. I was a freshman or sophomore, I believe a freshman, when 9-11 happened. And I can remember, like, to a T, me being in my room, my mom running up the stairs, alerting my dad, them pulling us for a family meeting before school, letting us know what was going on. I remember the outfit I put on for some reason, driving to school, listening to the radio, and just the fear and the chaos that was ensuing. That's a very big shaping event in, in my mind, similar to how my parents have talked about JFK's assassination. Uh, they remember the day at school. and So there's a shaping event. What's interesting is that this upcoming presidential election is going to be the first time that there's a whole pool of voters who were not alive during 9-11. And they've noticed that politically, there's going to be a shift in how people perceive different things and what their views are of things based on whether they have a personal connection to that event or not. And so they're recognizing that there's going to be a trend in that um, and a change. And so 9-11 for, for millennials. Right now, millennials are entering the workforce um, in some ways with a very high amount of student debt. Um, again, with the Great Recession and just in how impacted schools are right now, they, they're trying to figure out how to pay off their student debt. So it is delaying big purchases like weddings or buying a home. If you talk to most millennials, the thought of ever owning a home or owning a vehicle is, is kind of a foreign thought. They would rather have access and experience than ownership. And so watching their, um, they are experiencing a lot of financial instability and it's just part of, there's like no way out of it. It's just part of their, how, how they're gonna do it. Um, they want help in like having some guidance in big purchases, but again, the thought of ever owning something and having a title to it is just kind of a foreign thought to them because there's no way they're ever going to get out from underneath the debt that they have. So then we come to Gen Z. So it's anyone born between 95 to 2015. So right now those ages are 4 to 24. And so it's really looking at like the older side of Gen Z and when we look at young adults. Some other nicknames for them are the I generation because of the influence of the iPhone. Um, the average Gen Zer received their first mobile phone at the age of 10, um, but many of them grew up playing on their parents' tablets. And so many Gen Zers have picked up, they are very comfortable. I watched my niece and my nephew, they're both six, they're twins. They look at an iPhone, they immediately know exactly what to do, which is really fascinating. So at a young age, they're very comfortable with it, but they've also picked up trends and habits by watching their parents those are the millennials or the Gen X who are now kind of infatuated with their new toy. And the Gen Zers are watching to see the habits of it. They grow up in a very hyper-connected world. They feel very connected to everything that's going on globally because, again, it's right on their screen all the time. They spend, on average, about three hours a day on their mobile device. I think that's actually a lot higher, um, but depending on the age, a 24-year-old is on their phone constantly to a 10-year-old, their parents might be managing it a little bit differently. So I think that that average is actually a little bit higher. <clears throat> What's interesting is that this generation, the, the older side of Gen Z, 
they are opening up savings accounts at a much younger age, and they think that Gen Z is going to be um, a very fiscally responsible generation because they've seen the plight of the millennials and Gen X and the amount of financial instability they've had, that they're actually watching a trend that Gen Z, for all the other things that they have, just their access available to them, but they're actually going to be a little bit more financially responsible in some ways because they don't want to have what the previous generations have had in the amount of student debt and loans and things like that. Um, so just something that they're kind of watching for. Uh, they're a little bit more financially conservative in the, the trends that they're seeing right now. Um, some shaping events for Gen Z is smartphones, obviously, uh, social media, and that having a big uh, effect on them and their development. They've never known a country that's not at war just in the world that they have lived in so far, um, and the, the shaping events of the financial struggles that they've seen other generations go through. So when we look at, um, for young adults, and looking at um, millennials and Gen Z, oftentimes the biggest question that people have is when are you no longer a young adult and you are just a full-fledged adult? Um, and what's difficult is that everyone has a different definition of what it means to be an adult, and that's where the confusion lies. And so when I do this training with summer staff, summer staff is from 19 to 25, so prime young adult years, I'll ask them, how many of you feel like an adult? And a couple, in a room of 50 Ponderosa staff, I'll have maybe three to five raise their hand and be kind of like, yeah. Most of them are this, like, eh. <laughs> And I look at them like, what does this mean? Like, you're half adult, half not? And then some are just shaking their head, no. I'm like, you're 22, you don't feel like an adult? <clears throat> so I'll ask them, what, in your mind, what makes an adult? And for many of them, it's like, well, my parents are adults, and I'm nowhere near like where my parents are at. It's, I'm not financially responsible, like I'm not paying for my own bills, like I'm dependent on my parents. Um, I just don't feel like an adult. I'm not married, I don't have kids, I don't have anyone that's dependent on me. Um, I don't own a home. And so I'll use some of their definitions, whatever they throw out. I'm like, well, based on some of your definitions, I'm not an adult. I don't own my house, I don't, I'm not married, I don't have kids, I don't have anyone that's like dependent on me on a day-to-day -day basis. I am an adult, but by your definition, I'm not. So when, at some point, are you gonna become an adult? So it's a good conversation for us to have with them because that's one of the key parts that's missing right now in our culture is that there is no, there's no ceremony, there's no, no event that takes place where it's you are now an adult. And it's really up to culture or up to family to determine when that is. And everyone has a different definition in that. Um, one of the things that uh, someone pointed out to me the uh, first week when I was doing the seminar earlier this summer a parent came up and said, I'm just noticing a trend in our church. There's a, a lack of perseverance. It's like when things get hard, they jump ship. And I say, yeah, I think that that's a trend. There's a lack of perseverance, and there's always more choice available. And I think that those two kind of go hand in hand. Because there's always more choice for millennials and for Gen Z, when they experience hardship, they bail and will then pursue something else. And so we see that within... Um, within school, we see that within the workforce. There's not as much longevity. For many millennials, they don't anticipate, I'm gonna start a job and I'm gonna work my way up in the 
in the organization I'm part of. It's more of I'll have a couple years experience here, and then I'll get, be able to apply for this job, I'll have a couple years experience here, and then that'll set me up for being over here. It's a lot more jumping around, there's no longevity. My dad worked in the same company for 30 plus years. That is a very foreign topic, a foreign thought to many millennials and Gen Z of actually staying committed to a company for that long. Um, we also see it in uh, relationships, um, and we see that in the church. Uh, well, I don't really like this church anymore, so I'm going to go over here. Well, they're not giving me what I want, so I'm going to go over here. I was just talking to the youth speaker at um, the youth program for this week. His name is Rich. He worked at Hume Lake for 14 years as the youth director and then has been at a church. And so we were talking about the young adult program here specifically of what he sees in church, what we see here, and just the amount of choice that's offered and how there is a lack of perseverance when things get hard. There's also a lot of research out there of how we have made things so safe and so easy that uh, many young adults and youth right now, they don't know how, they don't have any coping skills of what to do when things are hard. Um, and some of that is because my, my older sister, she's like deep in parent-teacher conferences right now by having a nine-year-old and two six-year-olds. And she has talked about, you know, everyone has heard the term of the helicopter parent, kind of just hovering, making sure everything's okay. She said the term now that's used is the lawnmower parent, where they're just paving the way so it's a nice little path for their students to follow, and everything is cut and fresh and ready for them. So it's teaching, um, it's taking away the opportunity, kind of like a bird that's hatching out of an egg. They need to struggle, they need to be able to um, go through life experiencing some hardships so that they have the muscle, they have the coping skills, so that when they do face hardship, they know what to do in it, rather than, I can't even, and I'm just going to like pursue something else instead. And so there's actually, I haven't had a chance to read them just yet, but, um, but they've been recommended to me of one, of, one book is called The Coddling of the American Mind, and it's how everything is so safe that we now have a generation who don't know what to do when things get hard. Um, there's all the resources that I'll give in a moment. Um, but another, piece of this, and that I've seen, especially in working with young adults, many young adults who come for summer staff, for some of them, it's their first time ever having a job. And so we keep that in mind as we're doing interviews and as we're kind of training people of, for some of them, it's their first time ever needing to show up to work or that there's something expected of them or how to dress professionally or how to interview properly. It's, some of them, it's their first experience, their first go at it. And um, what I see often is this, um, they've grown up having the participation award given to them all through life. And you don't get an award just for showing up to work at the right time. <laughs> and yet there's this expectation for it of, I've done the bare minimum, shouldn't I get you know, some accolades, shouldn't I get some recognition for it? for doing your job that you've been hired to do, that you're being paid to do, um, but because they're used to the participation award where everyone gets to be awarded just for showing up, just for participating, that's not how the rest of the world works in the career force. And yet many of them expect that. And so they'll expect that there is, um, that they'll be rewarded just for doing what's expected of them, which is kind of interesting. So the participation award is starting to kind of backfire in some ways as those people who received have ribbons and trophies all along their wall are then realizing in the workplace, oh, it doesn't work that same way. 
Um, within young adult development, to better understand young adult development, we have to first look at what is the process of becoming a young adult and then an adult. Um, and it's really the, the term adolescence comes from the Latin root for adolescere, which means to grow to maturity. So really the, the season of adolescence is a season of time between childhood to adulthood and saying, how can we help you grow to maturity to go from being a child to an, to an adult? Um, what's interesting is that adolescence will start in biology. It kickstarts when it wants to with puberty and then it ends in culture. And the fact that it ends in culture isn't a good thing. But our bodies will naturally, and how God designed us, start the process for adolescence of growing to maturity. And biologically speaking, we'll start to grow to maturity. But then there isn't like a capstone when our bodies are done developing, but then there hasn't been another moment where we've been then like initiated into saying you are now an adult, unless parents or culture or something has defined when that is, and there isn't a definition for that. So for some, their first sexual experience, that is now you're considered an adult. Well, what if that's happening at 13? They're not yet ready to be an adult at that point. Is it when you graduate from college? Is it when you are legally allowed to drink by what culture states at 21? Is it when you get married? Like, there's so many different, there's so much confusion to when you become an adult. So it starts in biology, it ends in culture. And what we've seen is that the process of adolescence has lengthened over the years. And so in pre-1900, um, puberty was starting on average around 14, and then you were considered an adult joining the workforce at 16. So adolescence was a year and a half to two years of a little window of time saying, okay, you're no longer a child, you like are starting to develop biologically as an adult, and you're entering the workforce at 16, you're now an adult, take care of yourself. In the 1970s, Puberty was starting around age 13, starting to get a little younger, and then it was considered you were an adult at 18. A lot of it was because you could then serve your country, you could join the military at 18. So culturally, that was what was um, appropriate of at 18, if you can serve your country, you should be an adult. So then it was five years. Okay, it's kind of lengthened a little bit. Five years of adolescence, kind of figuring out, growing to maturity. In 2012, so seven years ago, puberty on average is starting at 11.7, it's getting younger. So they're noticing why is it that puberty is naturally starting in our, in our biology and our physiology. It's starting at a younger age. It continues to get younger and younger. Why is that? I think there's a lot of research out there for why. It could be um, sexual exposure and just what's on our media right now. It could also be diet. It could be climate. There's, like, there's a lot of different factors of why they think puberty is just biologically speaking starting at a much earlier age rate. Um, campers in day camp or at Redwood are in puberty, having their menstrual cycles, having sexual activity. It's a much younger age now and when puberty is starting. And they're trying to figure out why that is. There's a lot of research out there. But then in 2012, when it was said, when does adolescence end? And it said mid-20s. Not even like giving an actual age, just eh, mid. <laughs> How lazy is that? Like mid-20s, you'll finally be considered a young adult. And so all of a sudden we go from 11 to now mid-20s. That's now a 15-year span of time. What once was a one-and-a-half-year, two-year window to let them grow to maturity. Now it's 15 years. It takes us that long to grow to maturity. Um, 
So this question of when do we become adults, and so we've, instead of saying, hey, this is when you become an adult, instead we've had more terms, like extended adolescence, or even the term young adulthood. Why not just say adults? You go from adolescence to adults, why do we even need a term like young adult? But we've just, it's such a long window of time that now an 11-year-old to a 27-year-old is a big span of time, but all of them feel confused in when do I become an adult? So some of the confusion that kind of adds to it is on an aspirin bottle, an adult dosage is 12. You can get your license at 16 at the DMV. You can drink alcohol, which is uh, at 21. You can go see whatever rated movie you want to without parent permission at either 13 or 17 based on the movie's rating. You can vote in the U.S. election at 18. You can rent a car at 25. You can um, rent a room at a Holiday Inn at 16. You can serve in the military at 18. And you fly as an adult at age two. <laughs> so <laughs> culturally, we have everywhere from two to 25 saying uh, these different definitions of what an adult means, which just adds to our confusion of being adults. Like, what, when do I actually become an adult? Um, so in the process of adolescence, what's really interesting is a lot of it is the process of adolescence to become adults is a necessity to grow in being an individual and to recognize that the family that you were born into, you now become an individual and you're connected to your family. It's not to cut ties with them, but to say, I am now an individual responsible for myself and what choices am I going to make? Um, you can't choose a family that you were born into, but you can choose a family that you want to have in some ways in what you choose to do if you want to get married or have kids or how you want to raise your family. And so a lot of it is this process of individuation. And so asking three really key questions. Um, one is about identity. Who am I? Who do I want to be? I think that that's a lifelong journey, especially as followers of Jesus that we look at. But that's a big question that many students have, is questions of identity, questions of autonomy. What makes me unique? And what do I have that's unique to offer to the world? Like, what can I offer? And then affinity, to whom or to what do I want to belong? And so questions of identity, of uniqueness, of what can I offer, and then belonging. Those are the three biggest questions that students are asking and young adults are asking as they're figuring out who do they want to be as adults. And so, especially with camp, we take those three questions and we look at our programming of whatever theme we do for students and say, they are asking these questions regardless. How can we point them to what does the Bible say in answering those questions? What does God say about our identity? What does God say about our belonging and our affinity? What does God say about how he's uniquely designed us and what he's called us to offer to the world? So we look specifically at creating themes for students because we already know that they're asking those questions and how to point them to the answers that they're seeking in God's word. And so, for example, one of our themes back in 2013 was upside down. And it was the truth that's in Philippians 3.20 that says, you are a citizen of another kingdom, and we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his heavenly body. And so we studied the whole book of Philippians over the course of the week, saying, live like you belong to another world. And that was the whole tagline of that summer of live like you belong to another world. God has made you this way. You are his. Live here on earth as you belong to him. So questions of identity, questions of affinity. Um, what's really fascinating in all of this is that 
our bodies go through two, naturally, our bodies go through two very traumatic experiences. One is at birth and the growth of when you first are born and then the amount of very accelerated growth that you experience from being a newborn to a two-year-old. And then the second is at puberty. Unfortunately, in the world that we live in, there is a lot of other trauma that our bodies are going to experience. And that's an, an awful part of our world. Um, but naturally, for each person, regardless of where they grew up or what their experience have been, they'll naturally go through two very traumatic experiences just in the rate of growth that they'll experience, that being what it means by the trauma. One is at birth and one is at puberty. And so what we notice is that the process of growth after the first event is mirrored in the second event. And so from zero to two, a newborn to a toddler, they are in what we call the sampling stage. They are sampling the world. They are putting everything in their mouths. They, my niece, Callie, when she was little, would go up to an electrical socket and just lick it. She was trying to put everything in her mouth. And they're just, they're grabbing at everything. They're eating everything. They're just experiencing tactile, like the entire world. They're sampling it all. A three to a seven-year-old, they move from the sampling stage to then the testing stage. They're asking why to everything. They're just trying to understand, like, how does this world work? And they're starting to put the pieces together to understand it. My other niece, Kimball, when she was little, we'd watch a TV show, and she would just sit there and ask why to everything. It was, why is the princess sad? Why is the princess wearing this dress? Why did the prince say that? Why is the evil stepmother doing it? And I was like, dude, Kimball, just chill. <laughs> like, just watch, and you can see it play out. But she was just curious, just very, very curious asking why. She was really fascinated for a while about relationships and how, like, okay, so you're, like, my sister, that's what you are to my mommy, but my mommy's mommy is your grand, like, is your mom, like, she was just trying to figure out, like, my grandma is your mom, and so she was really fascinated trying to figure out how the world works, and so they're in the testing stage, asking a lot of whys, and then an eight to a ten-year-old is considered in the concluding stage. They've started to make conclusions of how the world works. I'm convinced that the most confident people on the planet are eight, nine, and ten-year-olds, <laughs> because they know how the world works, they'll come up to you and be like, I'm gonna be an astronaut one day. And they just know who they wanna be when they grow up. They know who their friends are. They can go out on the playground and make their best friends. There are these confident, they know how the world works. So why is it that those confident 10-year-olds then are the shy and insecure junior hires showing up to middle school the first day? What happened to that, to that very confident youngster? Puberty, exactly. So at puberty, all of a sudden everything shifts, and what we see is that we go back through sampling, testing, and concluding stage through puberty. And so when I give this training to our youth staff, I say it doesn't mean that you can treat our junior high students like you would treat a toddler. <laughs> We're not gonna patronize them, but to recognize that in a similar way that a toddler is just trying to understand the world that they live in and sample it all, is what a junior hire is feeling when it's like, I thought that I knew what my body was doing and all of a sudden I feel very out of control. For myself, I grew up playing soccer and there was one window of time I shot up and I had a growth spurt. I was this tall by eighth grade. So I had a very quick growth spurt and I had played soccer for years, very comfortable with it. But there were a couple weeks where because of my rapid growth spurt, I had no idea how to run because I wasn't used to this height. And so I take a step and then just topple over. And my parents and my coach were like, 
Achilles tie your cleats, like what's going on? What's wrong? And I just didn't know how to maneuver with now this added height. Uh, for many junior hires, they're just trying, they're sampling the world because everything is new, because their bodies are new. That's where a lot of the insecurity and the confusion and just like not understanding because they don't know. It's a very uncertain time for them. Um, one of my favorite stories, unfortunately, was years ago at Ponderosa, there was a junior high student who ate a poisonous plant on camp property. And my boss at the time, he was trying, he was like on the phone with UC Davis Medical Center trying to figure out and identify what the plant was because the, the student's like mouth is breaking out and all these sores and the poor guy. And so my boss was asking like, did someone put you up to this? Like, were you dared? Were you bullied into this? Are you not getting enough food at camp? <laughs> You're eating the foliage? Like, what's, what's going on? And the student was just like, seemed like a good idea. <laughs> we're like, really? Junior hires are incredibly bright. So this isn't to like poke fun at them or say that they're dumb by any means. They're incredibly bright. But there are just certain moments when they're like, I'm just trying to figure out this world that I'm, this new world that I'm in. And everything that once made sense no longer makes sense. And so then from sampling, we go to testing. And so high school students are often in the testing stage and they're asking why to everything. And it's because they're trying to understand, they're trying to understand the world that they live in. And so it's a little bit more of the rebellious why than a cute five-year-old who's just trying to understand. Um, but they're really just trying to test how the world works, but they're also starting to test relationships and they're, trying, they're starting to test themselves. And so I, the analogy that I often give is, it's like when you go into a dressing room and you're trying on different clothes. That's what high school students are doing in the testing phase, but they're doing it with their personality and with their interests. They're trying on these different like people and they're trying to figure out, does this fit on me? Do I like the person that I am when I act this way, when I use this type of vocabulary, when I'm interested in these types of things? Do I experience more belonging? Do other, do my peers relate to me better? Do I feel more accepted by them when I'm in this, when I'm in this outfit as opposed to another one? They're also testing adults. How do adults interact with me? Are they pushing me away? Are they drawing near to me? They're testing to try to figure out who do I want to be what interests do I want to have? What group do I want to be part of? It's like they're trying on different clothes. And even in the course of just a week, I'll see some students start out the week one way with one type of clothes on, and then as the week goes on, all of a sudden they become a different person. It's like they're really just trying on these different outfits, but it's their, their identity. They're trying to figure out what fits well with me, but also how do other people relate with me? And so for uh, whenever I'm interacting with junior high students, oftentimes they're just psyched to be at camp. They're just excited for everything. They'll run up to their counselors and immediately love them. And then a couple years goes by and those same campers will come back to camp and they're the high school students who are standing like this. And we do some really intentional activities on Monday and Tuesday to break down some of those walls so that they know you're gonna be loved regardless. And I say that too often to staff of, they give a lot of this but really inside, they're testing, are you still gonna reach out to me? Are you still going to love me? Is this God who you tell me about still going to love me even when I'm a punk and even when I'm pushing your buttons and I can tell you're frustrated, are you still gonna love me? They're testing all that. So then they move into uh, the concluding phase. And so that's a lot of the young adults. So all of this has been gearing towards the young adults who are now in the concluding stage 
who are now starting to make conclusions, like an eight to a 10-year-old, they know how the world works, they've started to figure out who they wanna be, and they need to start making these conclusions. What I will often say to staff when I get to this part, and like the concluding stage is now you guys, where you're at, and here's something that I would recommend, is to make conclusions, make some, have some answers to your questions, but to stay teachable and to realize you'll never fully arrive. Because some of my most frustrating moments have been with some of the summer staff and interns who are so deep in the concluding stage that there's no teachability. And so they'll say things like, I took a class for this last semester and it just really opened my eyes to see that all the awful things that people are doing in the world and I've become kind of an expert in this field and so if you want to learn more you can come talk to me because I know a lot about it because I took this one class my freshman year. <clears throat> You're laughing. It was like a little extreme, but some of those statements were actually said just a couple months ago during a training session with the current summer staff. And immediately, because it just like rubs me the wrong way, immediately it was just like, oh, I'm so frustrated. Like, did you not hear anything that I said about the concluding stage? <laughs> but then I thought about it, and I said, here is a young person, a young adult, who is recognizing things that they're passionate about, who is recognizing, I really love this, and I have something I want to offer others. And so I say, like, yes, what you're going for, like, what you want to offer people, the fact that you recognize that you're passionate about this, that you want to invest more, keep doing that, and stay teachable and realize that there's always more for you to learn. Um, that's what I often say to, to our young adults. So for junior hires, they are looking at what are we doing next. For high schoolers, they're asking who's going to be there because a lot of their, their meaning is developed through relationships and who they're friends with. For young adults, a lot of it is the why. They want to understand the why, not necessarily in like still trying to figure out the world as like a high, school, high schooler is, but more of I want to have significance, I want to have purpose, I want to know the why behind this because I want to choose whether I want to be involved in this or not. So they're asking a lot of the whys because they want to have purpose, they want to have significance. Um, I think for young adults, they feel often like they're caught in between, like I'm no longer a teenager, I'm no longer in a season of adolescence, I feel like I'm starting to make some decisions of who I want to be, but I'm not necessarily sure, like I'm not really accepted by society as an adult just yet. And I think that how we set this up is really important in how do we encourage people, we see this right now in the young adult program, why is it that there even is a young adult program at family camp? I think that there is some transition that's needed for a high schooler who's gone through the youth program to then be introduced to the adult program. It's kind of a big jump. It's like jumping into the deep end of a pool without any floaties on. If you go from the youth program straight to the adult one, there needs to be some transition time. But when people ask, well, what, cons what constitutes the young adult program? Like, what age range is it? I'm like, that's a great question. No one really knows. For some reason, I've been told 27 is when you age out of the young adult program. But there's no reason for that. It's just because it's like 28 is more late 20s. Okay, so if it's a mid-20s, is that 27? There's no intentional reason for that, but I think it points to a bigger, a bigger picture that the church and camps and just the world in general is trying to figure out when are our young adults adults and how can we help them get there. Some uh, resources that have been really helpful for myself in working with interns and with summer staff, neither of them are written by um, like from a specifically Christian perspective, so they're not ones that we necessarily have in the, in the bookstore here. 
Um, but I believe one of them is a Christian. She just doesn't write from a Christian perspective. But the first book is called The Defining Decade, and it's by Dr. Meg J. J is J-A-Y. And she writes from a perspective of um, counseling and being a therapist to a lot of 20-somethings and things that she was starting to notice them talking about and how many of them, 20s was the extended adolescence playground. And then all of a sudden, 30 hits, and they realize, oh, I'm not going to get my dream job because I haven't put in the work for it. Or all my friends have already married and settled down, and I'm realizing... I don't really know if I want to marry this person, but I don't want to miss out on not marrying someone, so I'll, I'll settle for them. And she started to notice this trend, so she put this whole book together called The Defining Decade, and she looks at work, love, and the brain and the body, and how the 20s are really um, important in what choices we make in our 20s to set up what we want the rest of our life to look like. Um, she uses a really great example. It's called the jar theory. Um, and it's, it's this really simple study that they did where if someone needs to go to the store to get jam, and if they go to, let's say, Costco, and there's like 20-plus options, every type of flavor of jam that you can imagine, the person who goes to get jam, that's all that they need, will end up leaving and not getting jam because they're too overwhelmed at the amount of choices, and they can't make a choice. There's too many options. So they said, if you only put out six, you might have more flavors, but only put out six, someone who comes to the store needing jam will sample, actually take the one that they need, and leave with what they came to the store with in the first place. So they said, why is that? And it's because oftentimes in our culture, if we have too many options and too many choices, we get overwhelmed, we don't know what to do, and we're like, I'll just do this another day. So that is what a lot of our 20-year-olds, a lot of what young adults are facing, because they've grown up in a world where people have told them, you can do anything, you can be a master at anything if you put your mind to it, when actually it's not true. You don't have enough hours in the day to be a true master. If it takes 10,000 hours to become a master at something, you can't be a master at many, many things. You don't have enough hours in your life, in your day, to become a master at all of it. So instead, we have young adults who have been told their entire life, I can do anything, I don't know which one to pick, so I'll just pick it later. Rather than saying, you can't do everything, so choose six that you might want to pursue. Figure out, try out these six that you might have an idea. So that's actually an, a, an activity that I have interns do when we read this book. Don't think of all the things that you could do in life. Actually think through the six you might want to do. All right, what steps do you want to take? Choose one or two to move towards one of those things rather than have the overwhelmed approach. Um, the other book is called Extreme Ownership. It's by uh, two Navy SEALs, um, Jocko Willink and Leif Babin. Willink is W-I-L-L-I-N-K, and then Babin is B-A-B-I-N. It's called Extreme Ownership. And they write from a military perspective, so I always give that disclaimer. Um, they in the mid-2000s were part of the um, war in Afghanistan. And what they realized is they went, they had been trained for war, went, and then realized that the, the territory and war looked different than what their training had been. So they came back and figured out we need to retrain some of our military to better set them up for what they're actually going to experience on the ground. So they write from a military perspective. So I often will tell people that depending on what your, what your background and what your thoughts are of the military and the war. But it's not, and he says this at the beginning, it's not a book to 
talk about war specifically. It's not a war book. It's not to talk about the pros and the cons of that war specifically. It's really to talk about leadership principles and how they realize that the leadership principles that they needed to train the military in are actual leadership pr principles that should be employed just in leadership in general, in civilian life, in business, in the corporate world. So that's what the whole point of the book is, that they do use examples and some grim ones of how they learn these leadership principles, but then they translate it saying, this is how you can put this into, into experience in day-to-day -day life and in business and organizations. So it's one of the best books that I've read in a while about leadership, and it's about ownership. And I think when we talk to young adults, and oftentimes it's the, the term adulting, I just don't want to adult right now. We like turned it into a verb of like adulting is a way of life and not just that you are an adult. It's like a choice. You can choose whether you want to be an adult or not. It's kind of a weird, a weird phrase. But this term of adulting, I think really at the root of it is ownership. And like, how are you taking ownership for yourself becoming an individual? How are you taking ownership for the things that you're involved in? How are you taking ownership and taking responsibility for your life and the choices that you make? And how the choices that you make are going to impact other people. And so how can you take ownership of what you do and how others will be affected by you? So whenever people talk about adulting, really what I'm starting to notice is, what are your thoughts on ownership? How are you taking ownership of your life? How are you taking ownership of your community? How are you taking ownership of, I want to be involved in a church and start to serve in a church, whether I like the music or not? Like, how are you going to take ownership of your choices? Um, <coughs> in my own experience, there were a couple of things that my parents did that as I've been teaching the seminar each week, I've kind of noticed more and more reflecting on it. My parents did something that I hope if I'm ever a parent one day, I want to employ as well. The first was that my mom took me out individually on a weekend to talk to me about puberty. My parents inserted themselves at each of these developmental stages of sampling, testing, and concluding. So at puberty, my dad took my brother, my mom took my sisters, and whenever it was like a little before we were going to hit puberty, she took us away on a weekend to talk to us about the wonders of life <laughs> and how we were going to grow to becoming a, a man or a woman. We, you know, and did some like fun things of like, all right, things are going to start to change. So they inserted themselves at that point. Then in high school, sometime in high school, my dad took me and then my sisters, my mom took my brother and talked to us about what does it look like to be in, in relationship, to go on dates with other people. How do they show you respect? How do you show them respect? And we kind of had that conversation in like the figuring out testing stage. What I don't think was necessarily like on their minds, but they did it, and it was really impactful for me, was when I got my, in some ways, my first job working at Mount Hermon. I was an intern, so I was going to be starting getting a paycheck. I went home for a weekend. My parents were only three hours away. I went home for a weekend, and my mom had told me, hey, when you're home for this weekend, we're going to go do some errands, and since you're now getting a paycheck, I'm going to put like, everything in your name. And so it was just a normal Saturday or whatever. We were going around town, just doing a bunch of errands. But we went to the DMV. We went to AAA. We went to the phone company. And so we put everything in my name. So I was no longer on my family's plan. But it was now, oh, these are bills. I'm going to need to figure out how to pay for. I'm going to need to start budgeting. And putting it all in my name and saying, like, you're now responsible for paying your bills, I think that really helped me feel like my parents are starting to treat me as an adult. I'm out of college, now I need to start taking responsibility for myself. So it wasn't as much of like a formal event, but I've told them, I think you doing that 
in my mind, helped me just take the next step of, oh, I need to start taking responsibility for myself, and this is what it looks like. This is just part of it. Um, one other story is that when I was in um, my mid-20s, I'd been working here for a while, and um, everyone has different views on it. I started seeing a counselor. I realized that there were some things. I was in my mid-20s that I was just trying to like, kind of figure out. And so um, I went to see a counselor. Um, everyone has different ideas of um, how that should be done, but I, it was something that was very helpful for me. And so I went to see a counselor, and during the course of seeing this counselor, I was really starting to um, realize some conversations I need to have with family members. And so for myself, I went home. There was um, a situation that was playing out in my family where my parents were going to have my uncle come and live with us. Um, and it, I was upset about it, but not because my un uncle was an unsafe individual, not because of anything that had happened. It was more of our family dynamics going to change. And so it was more of that. And so I went home, having learned some of these things with my counselor, kind of deconstructing some of the things that I needed to kind of figure out in my life. I went home to talk to my parents and I was really upset that they were choosing to have my uncle come and live at the house. And, it, you know, for a variety of reasons, I didn't express myself very well looking back on it. But I'm glad that I did have a conversation because it was a milestone conversation in my mind. Because in the way that my parents responded of saying, this is great, let's talk about it. My mom brought my dad into the room. The three of us had a great conversation. I was able to express to them how I was feeling. They shared with me things that I had no idea, like as my parents and their siblings had been adults while we were kids, things that they had been like processing through altogether. And now for their kids to grow to adulthood and be learning some of these things for the first time, it was good for me to better understand things that I just had never been aware of from a kid's perspective. But it was this kind of milestone moment in my mind of feeling like I had finally arrived at the adult table where it was, you know, like a holiday dinner. There's always a kid's table and then the adult table. And it felt like I had finally, like my parents had made space set up a chair saying, all right, you're now an adult. Let's have this conversation together. And it's still our family, but we all have different perspectives now. And so I wish I had expressed myself. My parents are doing the right thing, and I've told them that since then, of you guys are being Jesus to my uncle. I was just upset, and I'm glad that I expressed myself, though I would do it differently now in what I've learned. Um, but it was a momentous moment of being able to feel like now my family had extended the adult table in our family, and we could now have those conversations together rather than keeping it just the adults and the kids kind of separated. And so what my counselor would often say is it's like uh, a dance and a family learns how to do a dance together and everyone knows their part and knows the routine. But then as one of those family members grows to maturity and becomes an adult, maybe they want to do it a little differently. Maybe they want to like add something to the dance and it takes the entire family a little bit of flexibility to like relearn a new dance altogether. And every time that someone else kind of joins the adult table, everyone else has to kind of relearn it together. And so I saw that play out in my youngest sister. She, um, as the baby of the family, was always carted around to everything. And so my older sister and me, she was always like, oh, that's Brooke's little sister, that's Kelsey's little sister, that's Jared's. And so she was always like at, she's like fully participating, but just kind of there. And then she went away to college and came home during some holidays and was like starting to speak up or starting to be like, actually, I have a different opinion on that. And for all of us to kind of stop and be like, 
oh, there's someone new here. <laughs> like, all right. And so we all had to kind of relearn how to do this dance as each person kind of grew to adulthood and was figuring out, this is who I want to be as an adult. These are the decisions I'm going to make. And it's taken flexibility on our part as a whole family to like commitment to each other. Like we're going to relearn this dance, even though it's going to take some figuring out. But to be able to use that as an analogy of, oh, we need to relearn this all together so that you can be fully the adult that you're choosing to be and we can kind of participate in this adult world a little differently, but as a family. So really all of that has come down, come down to conversations that I've had with my parents, that they've had with me, and the flexibility and the grace <laughs> that we've given each other as well as each of myself and my siblings have been trying to figure out how to be adults in our families. Um, and now to welcome my nieces and nephew into how are they growing and eventually going to be adults in this family as well. So I have a few last things that I'll say that hopefully will give some hope, but I um, want to give enough time before lunch if there's any questions. Any questions for me? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think they... I saw it as my uncle was taking advantage of my parents in a way of like my parents being very gracious and very hospitable. Um, I didn't know that there was so much history of like things that my mom had worked through with her siblings. And so she was able to share a little bit more of like, you know, in the things that you've worked through with your siblings, this is what I've experienced with my siblings and them being your uncle and your aunt. And so I think it gave me better understanding of where my mom was coming from. And I also saw more strength from my parents. It wasn't them kind of lying back and being like, sure, you can walk over us. It was more of, no, we're going to do this because we are committed to acting as Jesus would to you, but here's also the things that we're going to allow, the things that we won't. And so they opened up their home, but also did it in a way where it wasn't easy for them. And so I saw my parents make a lot of sacrifices but in like strength and in choosing to do the hard thing and following Jesus. So I think better understanding that from them was like, oh, now you're in a spot. How can I encourage you and love you and support you as you're making a hard call, but doing it out of obedience to Jesus? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I was starting to notice that in my friendships and my um, significant other relationships that there were a trend of unhealth and that the common denominator was me. <laughs> and so realizing that there were some things where I felt like I was out of control in a way where I couldn't really recognize a person in the mirror either of just like, I am. I know logically that these are choices I shouldn't be making, but I still have like this... Um, lack of self-control to not respond in this emotional type of way and realizing I think it's not really this person that I'm in a relationship with. I think it's me and I need to figure this out because I want to be in healthy relationships in the future. So in my mind, it was me going to the gym <laughs> emotionally and mentally of realizing I'm unhealthy right now. I need to, if I want to have healthy relationships in the future, I should do the work right now. Um, but I wanted to see someone who is going to speak to me from a Christian perspective. So I didn't want the easy Christian answers. I wanted to wrestle more with it, but I still wanted it to be someone who shared the same beliefs as me. So it was actually Rachel Williams, who is my mentor. She recommended someone that she knew 
Um, and then my boss at the time gave me the same name, and they didn't know that. They both said the same person, and it was someone who was like involved with Mount Hermon and with the local church, but also had a lot of background um, in like clinical psychology. So she was able to kind of speak from both sides of, you know, from a psychological perspective, these are some things that you should probably process through. Also, what is God telling you in this? And so she was able to do that um, in both ways. And so I saw her for four years, um, and she just really helped me process through a lot of things of actually bad habits that I had learned as a kid. Um, and some of it wasn't necessarily out of habits. I had a speech impediment when I was little. And so I went through speech therapy. And so I had learned at a very young age how to get what I needed without using my words. And I started to notice that that pattern and just self-reflection was playing out in my adult relationships. I was acting out rather than saying what I needed and recognize that's really unhealthy. I need to get help with this. And I think it's a learned behavior from when I was a kid. And so that's when I was like, I think I'm going to need help really pulling apart all of this. Um, so a lot of it was out of self-reflection, doing the intern program here, and then just realizing I think I need help and um, asking people I already knew and trusted someone that they would know and trust that they could recommend me for. Yeah, of course. Yeah. No, not yet. I'm very curious what they're going to choose. Um, I know after Z, like what comes next? Do you go back to A? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know. Um, so yeah, I wonder if they're going to keep with the letters or if they're going to have, like, yeah, of like they had boomers. I don't know where Gen X kind of came out of that, but um, yeah, I'm really interested to see what one they choose. Okay, yeah. <laughs> so you have a big span. They're all stereotypes, but I often will see like some nodding, and I'm like, they're stereotypes for a reason, too. <laughs> but not everyone is the way that they say that they are. The hopeful thing I heard once, I don't know how accurate it is, but the Xers, because of lacking grand, a lot of divorce, yeah. lacking grandparents, parents, they had a sense of community like the church should be. Hmm. Yeah. Our, our extras would group date almost. Oh. You know, they didn't just look yeah. for one person first. Yeah. And I didn't know if that was like, you know, because the church well. was having to break down a little bit to figure out what right. they really wanted to be like. Right. Not, so I just wondered if they yeah. had some positive trends in the generation. Yeah, that's true. It usually hypes, uh, harps on the, the non-positive ones. Um, one of the things I've seen for, for Gen Z and a little bit with millennials is there's a very high degree, because they're so interconnected, they see things that are going on in the world, there's a big emphasis that they want to help the world. And so I think that that's a way that the church can really, I mean, that's what Jesus calls us to. And so that's like an easy way to engage with Gen Z and millennials, is there's already this deep desire of, I wanna help, I wanna serve. Um, there's a deep desire for that, that I think the church can then really insert themselves to kind of meet that need of like, hey, that's one way that we're doing this together, and let's talk about Jesus in the meantime. Yeah. So yeah, there are a lot of really positive things. I, For students, they're hungry to want to learn. They're hungry to want to better understand themselves. Um, there's obviously some narcissism that comes into that as well, um, but there is a big emphasis on wanting to help the world and help others. Yeah. Yeah, the Gen Z want, wants to help. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yes. What advice would you give maybe two or three gentle steps to prepare a 36 year old child uh, to become mm. the adult? Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
gosh, I'd feel like I'd have more questions than I'd have necessarily answers. Um, I think it really kind of starts with what people's definition of being an adult is. And so I think that, I think to some, they might consider themselves an adult, but others would say, like, no, based on these, we don't think that you are. So I think it would more start with a conversation of what their, what that 36-year-old, what they define as an adulthood, um, as well as if that's something that they want. Because I think that there are some who are also saying, like, no, I've got it. I don't need to own my own home because I enjoy living at my parents, and I already have everything that I need, so why should I wrestle or struggle just for ownership when I can have what I need right now? And so I think I would more, rather than having a couple steps, I would more have a conversation about what their definition of adulthood is and if it's something that they want. And if, it's, if it is something that they want, then pushing them to, okay, what steps can we take to move you towards adulthood? If it's not even something that they want, then more starting the conversation there of why is it that you don't want to pursue adulthood? What are the things that, yeah, I'd say to kind of start the conversation there to better understand, and then out of that have the steps of how to get there based on what they say. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think what's interesting is that oftentimes one generation will be like, oh, we want to be different, but in being different, I think they then adopt some similar traits to the ones like previously, and so um, I wouldn't be surprised, um, especially with some of the younger Gen Z, it's so easily accessible to have social media, to have the internet right at their fingertips. I wouldn't be surprised if they move more towards going back to, um, yeah, uh, older phones or have, choosing to not have a social media account. There are actually a lot of students who are like, no, I'm just going to choose not to because I want to be different. Um, so I think that there could be some, a lot of similarities between other generations, not the previous one, but like the one kind of jumping over a couple more. So I think that they have some similarities. They won't have the similarities of like the shaping events of what happened during those times. Um, but I think there seems to be a lot of Gen Zers who are starting to adopt some of the traits of the boomers, of wanting to be a little bit more conservative in some ways, um, especially financially, and go back to a, like a more simple time. And so I think there are some similarities. They just kind of cross over and jump a couple generations. Um, but I think also the, um, the, I love when there are older people who are serving in youth ministry because they offer a different perspective than the young adults who are just a couple steps down the road. And so, um, you know, for, I think that there's a way to connect them in saying, yeah, we may be different, but God is the same God as he was 50 years ago as he is now. So what have you learned in going through youth ministry? What have I learned through youth ministry? Same God, just different world that we're living in and kind of connect through that being the similarity as opposed to just the shaping events of a generation. Yeah. Yeah, Peter. <clears throat> yeah. Oh yeah, I share a lot of stories with our our youth staff, so mostly so they can get to know me, but also like get used to laughing with me about myself. Um, 
like key moments where it was that moment of being in a dressing room and putting on, it was like in the 2000s, so the Avril Lavigne era. So it's like, uh, you know, a really chunky big belt and like a skater uh, t-shirt. And I remember looking in the mirror and being like, this is it, this is me. I'm gonna go home and throw all my clothes away and only buy these types of clothes <laughs> because this is now who I'm gonna be. But like a couple of days later, I completely switched and was trying something else on. So like that example of trying on different clothes as their personalities, like I did that even just with clothes or with the music I listened to. There was this defining moment where I was like, I don't like Backstreet Boys anymore. I like NSYNC and that being this like, it, I'm a new person and be like, it's so simple and so silly. But there were these moments where I felt like, oh my gosh, my world is completely changing because it's something that I'm interested in or something that I, I like a little bit more now. It just, but in those moments, it felt very identity driven and I am a new person because of the things that I'm interested in when it really wasn't that big of a deal. But in my mind, it was this very concrete event. Um, so yeah, there are a lot of, I can look back on a lot of sampling and testing stages for myself. So I'll stay around. I don't want to make you guys late to lunch, but I'll stay around if you have any other questions um, that you have for me. But the one thing just to give you some hope in, in leaving is many people will come up and be like, ah, oh, the current generation, they just seem so screwed up in some ways and lost in other ways and the rise in anxiety and depression and suicide rates. Like what, what is happening with this current generation and in 20 plus years when the current generation are gonna be those in church and in leadership positions in the church, there's a lot of fear that I sense from people of the world is falling apart and what is gonna happen with this current generation. Well, what I tell people is I wish that you could see the Forest View meeting room in the field house where the youth students are worshiping Jesus with the CC youth counselors. I wish you could see a Pondy Forum where there's hundreds of junior high and high school students who are worshiping God and growing closer to him. And so I wish people could see those moments because it's like God has been taking care of us for forever and he's been taking care of all these different generations and the current ones are, there are many who are passionately choosing to follow him and I have great hope that God is gonna do incredible things to our young adults and our students of today. So um, I have great hope in that. So. I'll be around if you have any other questions for me, but thanks for joining me today and talking about our young adults. Yeah.